Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Uh, thanks for being here this morning. So good to see each and every one of you. Happy Valentine's Day. If you're like a Valentine's-y person, I know like it's kind of like split. Some people hate it. Some people love it. So if you like it, happy Valentine's Day. If you don't, not happy Valentine's Day. But we're glad, we're glad that you're here with us uh, this morning. And this morning we're going to jump into the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 25 this morning. And so if you have a physical Bible, great. If you have a digital Bible, wonderful. And you're totally welcome to follow along. We would encourage that. And uh, as you get turned there, what we are going to look at today is kind of the beginning of this third act of the book, the Gospel of Mark. Um, We have seen Jesus do a ton of incredible things leading up to this moment. We've seen him cast out demons and and heal people who are sick and, and bring food out of nowhere. And he spent a ton of time teaching about his kingdom and what that's going to look like and how we are to be a part of that kingdom if we want to be, what that's going to look like for our lives and up until this point, he has been kind of secretive about it. If, if you remember many times, especially early on in his ministry, he encouraged people, don't go tell everyone about this, kind of trying to keep a low profile. From today on, though, all of that is out the window. Like Jesus is letting the world know, letting everyone who is there know exactly who he is in the passage of scripture that we're going to read today. And this is where the story really starts clipping along. Um, It it begins the week before Jesus goes to the cross and experiences that horrific death, death, uh, goes to the grave, and ultimately uh, culminates in his defeat over sin and death and the establishment of his kingdom, which looks so different than what anyone was expecting, uh, even though some had been looking for it. And today we're going to look at a few interactions and situations, and there seems to be a common theme that runs through all of these uh, situations, and it's this, things are not as they seem. Every single one of the the stories and situations we're going to look at today, things are not as they seem. And actually, it seems like Jesus is the only one there who actually gets what is going on. And and, and so I'd encourage us as we read these, um, go into reading the scripture with that mindset. Okay, I understand that things are not as they seem on the surface here. Um, There's something going on behind the scenes. It can be easy for us to do to just take something at face value or or interpret it as easily as possible. Some of the things we're going to look at today seem very obvious, but there's something going on behind the scenes. Some of them seem really confusing, but there's something deeper at work there. And uh, this is not a new concept to us. We, we understand that people and situations and experiences aren't always what they seem. But sometimes I think it's hard for us to apply that to Scripture, even when we, when we should. See, I think we can look at something and think we know exactly what is going on here because of our perception and our history and our experience. But come to find out that we're completely mistaken and we've completely missed the truth. I'm sure that that has happened to to many of us, and it happens all the time. Let me give you a quick example uh, of how prevalent this is, I guess, in our lives and our experiences, where we're so sure and we think we know something, and it seems so obvious, but it turns out we've totally missed the point and the truth. 
Uh, I got to talk to my grandmother this week, and uh, I don't do that super often, but I got a chance to connect with her this week. And um, every time I talk to my grandparents, both sets are alive, um, they always want to tell me stories from my childhood that I can use in messages. They watch sometimes, stuff like that. So they're always like, hey, I, I was reminded of this story. I thought maybe you could put it in a message or whatever. And I'll be honest, I don't usually use them because they don't usually paint me in a very flattering light because they're all from my childhood. And dumb little Kyle did dumb little things. And so I'm not like real keen to always share this stuff. But the story that my grandmother shared with me this week, I was like, oh, that is perfect. That's exactly what we're talking about here on Sunday. And so when I was a very, very young child, not even two years old yet, uh, my, my parents took me to visit my grandparents who lived in New, in New Mexico. And so they, during all my childhood, they lived in New Mexico. We would go down there a lot. We would visit them. We went to this town called Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. That's where they lived. Like what a great name for like a wild, weird little desert town, right? And it put the fear of God in me of my grandparents, that's for sure. Because I had to tell them the truth because I knew there were consequences if I didn't. And so we would go down there, we would visit them, and they would oftentimes take us around like you do when people come to visit. You take them to Yosemite or whatever, to the beach. And they took us to this uh, national park called White Sands National Park. And it's a really cool area. It's just, just as far as the eye can see, these massive, like, pristine white sand dunes. You know, like sand at the beach, you know, it's kind of yellowy. These are just, like, pristine white sand dunes. And people ATV out there, and they, like... They like snowboard down the sand dunes and you can run around and there's things to learn and things to see and all that. And I have lots of memories growing up going to these sand dunes, but my grandmother told me the story of the very first time that I saw them. And I have no memory of this because I was so young, but she said that we drove up to the sand dunes, she opened the car and she grabbed me out of my car seat and she brought me in. She was going to put me down into the sand so that I could, you know, feel them on my chubby little baby feet. And, and so she tried to put me down and I was doing that baby thing where, you know, they like hold their legs up like as much as possible. Like, no, I will not. I will not put my feet down. And my grandma was like, what is going on here? And, and she kind of she kind of bent over to try to kind of force me to like sit down in the sand. And I just lost it. Like I just started screaming my head off. And she was like, what is wrong with this child? Right. And uh, I was screaming and screaming, and I couldn't say a lot of words, but what I kept saying and she could understand was, no, Nana, no, it's cold, it's cold, no, it's cold. And she was like, what in the world is going on? So eventually she just kind of makes me sit down in the sand, and I realize it's not cold. It's the desert in the summer, in the afternoon. If anything, it might be a little hot, but it's definitely not cold. And so I just dealt with it, went about what babies do in sand, probably ate a lot of it that day. And... She thought, about, she thought about that, and she was wondering, like, why in the world was he so upset? And she came to this realization, oh, at two years old, the only frame of reference that he has for expansive white, like white as far as the eye can see, is snow. Because I was raised in Wyoming, and there's always snow. And so in my little brain, at not even two years old, like, all I could perceive is that if there's a bunch of white in front of me, then it can only be snow even though objectively it was sand, right? It was not cold, it was sand, objectively. But I couldn't wrap my head around it because all I had perceived up until that point was if it's a bunch of white, it has to be snow. And I think the same thing happens to us spiritually all the time where we're so stuck in a pattern or we're used to a certain context or we've done things the same way for so very long that when we're presented with something different, something that might even be the truth, it is really hard for us to make that shift. And I think that's exactly what 
Mark is drawing us to. This is exactly what Jesus is doing in these few interactions and situations that we're going to look at today. Things are not as they seem, and we cannot miss the truth and the point. So when we jump in on cha- in chapter 11 at verse 1, we find a fairly significant moment in the life of Jesus and his disciples, and that's them going into the city of Jerusalem. Now, this was significant for Jesus in a different way than it was significant for the disciples. For Jesus, he knew that this started the week that would lead to his death and his resurrection, so very significant. But the disciples, they've been having a hard time keeping pace with Jesus on his mission and on his purpose, right? We've seen that over and over again. But this was still a very significant moment for them because the reason that they were going into Jerusalem was to celebrate Passover. Now, there's a lot that goes into Passover, but it, it, was a, it was a festival, it was a week of celebration that was meant to look back and remind the Israelite people of God's deliverance and rescue of their country, their nation, out of slavery from under Egypt in the Old Testament. And they were meant to be drawn back to this fact that God has delivered us, that God has rescued us, and they would throw this big festival uh, every single year. And the place was packed as a result. Any good Jewish person would make it a point to get to Jerusalem for the Passover celebrations. If you had a reputation to keep up, if you had a business, like it was in your best interest to get there if you could. And so the city would like swell to multiple times its size. There was a ton of revenue being generated. There was all kinds of people there. The streets were packed. And this is the scene where Jesus decides to say something very significant about who he is. We pick up reading in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. I won't lie, these guys got like a raw deal. I don't know if they like made breakfast bad the morning of or what, but Jesus told us, go into this neighboring town and steal a donkey for me. And if anyone asks about it, just say, the Lord said that he could take it and he'll bring it back when he's done. I would be stressed if I was those guys. Because I wouldn't want to be confronted on that. That'd be like, you know, somebody saying, hey, go into the parking lot and and find a minivan, which I imagine is the equivalent to a donkey in like the car world. Go out and find a a minivan and here's the keys, grab the keys and and bring it over to me. And if anyone asks, just say, well, the Lord needed it, you know? I don't know if, I don't know if criminals, carjackers should maybe try that. Maybe it would work out for them. But to these guys' benefit, they did it and they they followed through with what Jesus asked them to do. In verse 4, it says, They went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Fair question. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they just let them go. I don't know if these guys were like really in tune with the Spirit of God and what was happening in this moment, or if they're just like the biggest suckers ever, but it actually worked out for them to go grab a donkey from a town and bring it over to Jesus. Verse 7, it says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that, had cut, that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. 
I won't lie, this, as, as a, a kid who grew up in the 90s in, entrenched in church culture, this story has all kinds of nostalgia for me. Because at least my church in the 90s, they leaned pretty heavy into like cheesy productions to get their point across. And so my church definitely had a guy with a fake beard glued to his face ride a live donkey down the middle of the, of the worship center on, on uh, Palm Sunday. Like, my church definitely had the entire, like, kids' ministry put on oversized uh, pillowcases and throw cloaks in front of Jesus as he walked in. My, my church definitely wasted way too much money buying palm fronds every single year and passing them out to the congregation so that they could wave them after they went and found every hymn in the hymn book that happened to have the word Hosanna in it. And they would wave them around. And then the thing I remember more than anything else is the kids would all run around later and whip each other with them. Like that's, but man, I have like some deep nostalgic memories of this time. I'm sure First Baptist was way cooler than to get involved with all that. But my church, we leaned really heavy into this when I was a kid. And this, I, I say this because that influenced how I've always looked at this story. I've had kind of a picture put in front of me from growing up, and I just always assumed that that was probably exactly what it was like. And my conclusion was, this just seemed like a big, exciting, massive party. And on the surface, it might have been. But like I said before, things are not what they seemed. In this moment, Jesus wasn't just throwing a big party Jesus was actually making a massive statement about who he is. A huge statement that, were, that would be one of the big reasons that the Pharisees were so sure that he needed to be killed. See, this passage of scripture is just absolutely drenched in prophetic fulfillment. When we talk about prophetic fulfillment, that sounds way churchy and inaccessible, but ultimately this is what it is. From the very beginning, when, when humankind severed our relationship with God, God has been putting these hints in Scripture, pointing us to the reality that someone would come to set things right and to repair that relationship. And Jesus, when he walked this earth, he fulfilled so many of those hints to prove to us and the people who were watching that he really could be trusted. He actually is who he says he is. And there is a ton in what just happened here. We see that, that Jesus went and got a donkey that is directly taken from Zechariah chapter 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. How? Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah says, this is how your king is coming to you. And this was actually a common practice in ancient Israel for ancient Israel's kings. They would re-enter from battle or from being away and they would get on a donkey. It signified and tied to royalty, to kingship. But that wasn't the only thing that happened here that was prophetic fulfillment. When the people threw their cloaks and those branches down in front of Jesus, it's a reference to 2 Kings chapter 9, where this king named Jehu was anointed and the people of Israel put cloaks down in front of him as he walked through the city. And it doesn't even stop there. The crowd itself makes a statement about Jesus' royalty and kingship. And let's remember what this crowd was made up of. I mean, these are Jesus' people that he has been gathering in the countryside all this time and then bringing into the city of Jerusalem. These are people who used to be demon-possessed and used to be crippled, and these are people who are 
tax collectors and prostitutes and zealots and fishermen, people who oftentimes are totally missing the point and not even sure why they're following Jesus, but they need to. This was a, this was a riffraff crew of people. And they were singing out these words, uh, blessing Jesus' name and, and asking Jesus to set up this kingdom of David that they looked back on so fondly. It's really interesting, you know, scholars are kind of split on exactly what's going on here with these words of, of Hosanna and blessing the name of Jesus uh, being yelled and chanted and sang. Some people are very convinced that they were very pointed right at Jesus as he was riding through. Other, other scholars believe that these were words that were just spoken and sang and chanted all the time throughout the Passover celebrations. And Jesus just happened to be there at the right time. Either way, it paints a pretty compelling picture that Jesus has made it so clear, I am your king and I am here. I am your king and I am here. And anyone who was paying attention would have caught this. Any Pharisee who happened to be watching or happened to be there at that time, they, would, they were like, oh, a donkey check. Oh, the, the cloaks check. Oh, man, these words check. This guy's saying he's king. He's got to go. Anyone who was watching would have began to piece this together. Jesus is making a clear statement. I'm your king and I'm here. And then he does something super weird. And we don't actually get to see it in the Gospel of Mark, but we do get to see it in the Gospel of Luke. That's the beautiful thing about the story of Jesus is, you know, we have four Gospels that are all, uh, that all coincide and are consistent with each other, but they also fill in the blanks where there are ones in the others. And in Luke chapter 19, we get the description of this triumphal entry of Jesus, all the things we just talked through, and then Luke decides to add one more thing. As they draw close to the city, This is what Luke tells us Jesus did. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. In other words, Jesus is looking over this city that was supposed to be the spiritual heart and soul of this country that was supposed to be a blessing and a beacon of how God and humans could have relationship, which would eventually be given to all nations to be brought into God's family. And he says, man, you have completely missed the point. If only you knew what you needed, but your eyes are hidden. He looked at the religious leaders and said, you've missed the point. He looked at this crowd that was whipped up into a frenzy, but with no real uh, substance all around him. He says, oh, you guys have missed the point. I I imagine he even looked at his disciples and said, even after all this time, you guys are missing the point. Things are not as they seem. It's not just a big party. There's a lot more going on underneath the surface. And they enter Jerusalem. We pick up reading in Mark at chapter 11, or uh, verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Not a very climactic moment, right? Jesus is coming in, and people are literally singing his praises. He's got this huge crew of people, and they storm their way right up to the gates of the temple, and they throw the gates open, and Jesus just looks around and takes it all in, and then turns around and heads out. We know what Jesus saw when he opened those gates, because they they drive him to go back the next day and do what he did. 
See, when he opened those gates, he saw a very busy and very profitable and seemingly very successful scene in front of him. But things aren't what they seemed. When he looked into the temple and everything that was being done in these outer courts of the temple, he saw commercialism. He saw money changers taking advantage of people, ripping people off. He saw exploitation. He saw a ton of corruption, a ton of injustice. He saw pride, hypocrisy. He saw exclusivity and racism. And he saw all kinds of religious ceremonies that were being carried out all the day long, but without any meaning or, any, or, or from a genuine heart. And so Jesus takes this all in. We don't know exactly what he's thinking, but I can't imagine he was super happy about it. And he takes his disciples and he heads back out of town for a good night's sleep. I don't know how good a night of sleep it could have possibly been because the next day he wakes up and he seems pretty grumpy. In verse 12, we pick up what, uh, with Jesus and his disciples and it says this, On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. That all seems very straightforward, right? He went up to a tree that wasn't supposed to be producing figs, and he didn't find any figs. Okay. And then in verse 14, he does something kind of strange. He says, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. What in the world, right? Like, did Jesus wake up on the wrong side of the bed this morning? Or does, like, does the Son of God get hangry? Is that like a thing that happens? Because it really does look, I'm not trying to be sacrilegious or anything, but it looks like he threw a hissy fit and used his divine power to tell a tree, you can't produce fruit anymore. That's what it seems like on the surface. But again, things aren't as they seem. For us to really understand what Jesus is doing here, it requires us to have a little bit of knowledge about fig tree horticulture, if you will. Um, I don't know much about fig trees. I'm not sure I've ever even eaten a fig, to be honest. Uh, But I have the internet, so I went and I looked up some stuff about fig trees. And it's pretty compelling. So the purpose of a fig tree is to produce juicy, delicious figs, right? That's the crop that they produce. Uh, But in the seasonal cycle of a fig tree, a fig tree will get to a certain point in its cycle where where it will be in leaf, as Jesus describes here. And during that time, it's not producing the big, purpley, ripe figs that you might have seen, uh, but it does produce something called pagums. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but I think it is pagums. And they're smaller than figs. They're green. They're hard. Um, They're not what the tree could produce eventually, but it's something. And people in ancient times and even today, they do pick these off of the uh, fig trees and they will eat them. So it's not, it's not, the thing the tree could produce eventually, but it is something that, that Jesus was looking for. And so when he went up to this tree, it looked like it should have some of these pagums in it because it was in leaf, it looked full, it looked healthy. But when he got there, he found it empty. Fig, tree, fig trees also have a lot of symbolism surrounding them. They're oftentimes associated with blessing in the Old Testament in the ancient world. And at times in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is compared to a fig tree. So as we have all these pieces, it's interesting as they come together, right? There's this fig tree that's a metaphor for the nation of Israel that's supposed to be a blessing to people and looks really good on the outside, but as soon as Jesus gets close and inspects it, it has absolutely nothing to offer. 
which leads Jesus to cast this pretty intense judgment upon this tree. So the disciples are watching this. I'm sure they're kind of used to watching Jesus do some things they don't understand at this point. But they're watching it, and they file it away. And no doubt in the back of their mind, no doubt this situation was in the back of their minds as they watched what Jesus did next. And so after this quite disappointing breakfast, uh, Jesus and his disciples head back into the city of Jerusalem. There's no big crowd. There's no donkey this time. It's just Jesus and his disciples heading back into the city. And this is what he decides to do. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So this is the situation here. So this we can get like a picture of it. Most likely this, this big scene that Jesus causes right here happened in an area of the temple called the court of the Gentiles. And so if you can kind of imagine there's this big outer courtyard in the temple. And that area was kind of reserved for Gentiles, people who were not Jewish but had faith in God, where they could come and they could worship God. There were other parts of the temple that were enclosed, a little more ornate, that were reserved for the Israelites, and there was different sections in there. But this big open area was kind of meant for the Gentiles. And so when Jesus throws open those doors, he sees that place completely packed full of people exchanging money that could only be used at the temple, of people selling animals for sacrifices that would have had the prices way jacked up. There's people cheating each other all all over the place. There's people lying to each other. There's all kinds of hypocrisy and corruption going on in this scene, and Jesus is just not having it. Like, he flips over the tables. He scatters the money all over the floor. Other gospels tell us that he fashions a whip out of rope and, like, drives the animals out of there. And then he plops down right in the middle, and he won't let anybody get back to business as usual, constantly just harassing people. And... We're at downtown church, and I spent a lot of time down here in the day and night, and I've gotten to see a few scenes in my time here. I've gotten to see people who are maybe struggling with addiction or just uh, struggling with mental health or whatever, or just really, really frustrated kind of cause a scene. And if you're in a big open area and somebody's causing a scene, everyone's attention is always drawn right to that person, right? Everybody in the vicinity is like, what is going on over there? And so you know that in this big open courtyard, Jesus had the attention of everybody there, people who were there to worship and people who were there to make money, people that, who were there that loved God and people who were there that couldn't care less about God. He had their attention. And he takes this opportunity to teach. In verse 17, he says this, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. He's calling these people out for all their corruption and all of their greed and all of their pride and even their nationalism by pushing out the Gentiles and not giving them a place to be and to worship. He's calling them out on it. That's not what my house is supposed to be. That's not what my father's house is supposed to be. You've made it a house full of criminals, criminals running the show. And the chief priests and scribes heard it And were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. We know this crowd, I mean, they weren't sticking around for long, but Jesus had attention enough of the crowd that the scribes and Pharisees were like, oh man, we got to get him out of here. 
He's messing with our livelihood now. He's messing with our bottom line now. He is messing with all of our systems that we have set up that work for our benefit. He has to go. He's hit us where it hurts. We can't have him spreading this kind of ideas around. In verse 19, after sitting there all day causing all kinds of of a ruckus, it says, and when evening came, they went out of the city and headed back, presumably, to Bethany to stay for the night. Now, these are two situations that feel very different in scope, but I don't think it's any coincidence, I'm sure it's not, that they they are squished back to back with each other. Because the fig tree and the temple, which was oftentimes also a representation of a special thing for the nation of Israel, these two things are meant to be compared. And what's interesting here is that neither of them were what they seemed. The fig tree wasn't what it seemed, and the temple wasn't what it seemed either. The fig tree seemed like it should be producing something. Maybe not a perfectly formed fig, but it should be producing at least something. And and upon closer inspection, Jesus found nothing. The temple seemed to be doing exactly what it was supposed to do. There was a a huge crowd there. There were sacrifices being made right and left. There was money funneled into the place. It takes money to run this place. And so the people running the show, man, they might be patting themselves on the back saying, we're doing the best we can. Yeah, maybe we've cut some corners. Maybe we've made some compromises. Maybe we've held some people down. But, I mean, we're so efficient now. We've accomplished so much now. Everybody's doing really well now. It seems on the surface like, Things are going quite well, but things are not as they seem. In both these situations, they looked really good on the outside, but what was inside was sick, decaying, and lacking. And Jesus makes no qualms about it. He makes it very clear here that he cares so much less about how good we look on the outside and is far more concerned with what our life is producing. He makes it clear that he could not care less about how religious we look on the outside if how we treat people is like garbage, if how we view God is lacking of what it should be. Reality is we can look and we can feel like big successes. We can convince ourselves that we have made it. But if our life is not producing and living out kingdom values that Jesus has spent an entire gospel trying to nail home to us, we have absolutely missed the point. Like Jerusalem has missed the point as Jesus wept over that city. Like the Pharisees and the crowds and the disciples have missed the point. So the question is, like, what does this mean for us here in 2021? Like, none of us have participated unless it was in a play, the triumphal entry, right? We weren't there in that moment. Um, Like I said, I don't think I've ever even eaten a fig, and I've never even been to a Jewish temple. So what am I supposed to see in this? What What is trying to be communicated to me here? I think the reality that I keep coming back to here is this. I think this season of life that we are living in, that we have been living in over the past year, I think it's also not what it seems. Like so many of these instances that we've looked at this morning. I think the season that we're living in is also not what it seems, because if I'm being quite honest, to me, in my own wisdom and cleverness 
It seems like something to get past as quickly as possible. It seems like something to just try to make it through and find some semblance of comfort, normality. Like surely that is, is how we should look at this thing. But I'm becoming more and more convinced of this because of what God is doing in our church and, do, and doing through Matt, and he's been able to share some of that with you, and, and doing through our community here. I'm more cons, uh, convinced than ever that the season we're living in right now is an opportunity for God to do some hard, like gut-wrenching, but terribly significant work in the lives of his followers, in the lives of his church, and even specifically this church. See, I think throughout this past year, and in the season we're living in right now, Jesus has been very faithful to shake some of our branches. He's been very faithful to use what has been difficult, what has been designed for evil, to turn it to good and shake some of our branches. The question that we got to ask ourselves is, what is he going to find? What have we produced, if anything at all? Because he makes it really clear he's not looking for a big show. He's not looking for a successful endeavor. He's not looking for someone who has all the answers. He's looking for surrender. He's looking for humility and honesty and dependence. He's looking for people who have counted the cost and with joy are willing to participate in his suffering because he is worth it. People who are not bound up and messed up by their rights and their freedoms and their sin tendencies and their comfort that's so important to us, really their way that they think life should go. And when he looks at me, what is he going to find? When he looks at you, what is he going to find? I think he's been faithful to shake some branches, but what comes out when he does? I think Jesus has also been faithful during this season to come in to flip some, flip some tables. It's kind of a hard pill to swallow, I think. But whether we like it or not, the past year and how we're living right now has shown parts of how we do church and have done church for a really long time that absolutely 100% need to change. Things that we have been off on, things that we have clung to so tightly that maybe we should have held a little looser, and things that we were very open-handed with that we need to cling tightly to. Even though we got used to them and we, we, they, they seem to make sense, I think Jesus has rolled in here and he has flipped some of them completely on their head. Jesus has come and knocked them right over. And the question we got to ask ourselves collectively as a church is, okay, Jesus has made it clear where we have been off, now what are we going to do about it? And if we're not grappling with some of these questions, we ha have we even been paying attention over the last year? See, those scribes, those Pharisees, those money changers, the people selling and buying animals in that temple square, after Jesus left that night and went back to Bethany, you know what they did? They put their tables back up, they scrounged up all their money, they got thrown on the ground, and the next day they went back to business as usual. And they actually made that work for them for about 40 more years before that temple got torn to the ground. And I think we got we to... Gotta, just own this reality that maybe not a month from now, maybe not a year from now, but eventually things will feel a little less crazy. And the tendency, the temptation, I think, for us as a church will be, maybe we could just set this table back up. It worked before, let's, let's try it again. Oh, I, I know that God showed us some things that we were off, but man, it was so much easier and so much more efficient, and it's just the way things are, you know, it's a different time than way back then. 
and we'll go back to business as usual. I'm so convinced that if we do that, we are, we are signing, the war, like signing our death certificate for eventual destruction. If we just keep trying to do things the way they have always been, we're headed toward destruction. When Jesus has clearly laid out, I have something different for you. And it feels like we are on the edge of something incredibly important that Jesus wants to do in our church and in our lives. I, as someone who cares a lot about Crosspoint and cares about my family and cares about my own relationship with Jesus, and I know that, that includes so many of us in this room and watching online, I do not want Jesus to look at this church and say, I showed you exactly where you were off. Why do you have everything set right back up again? I don't want Jesus to, to come and inspect my life and find that I'm not producing anything that looks like his kingdom. I don't want him to look at me and be grieved and to look at you and our church and be grieved because we're just withered up dry and not any good to anyone. And I think unless we are willing to change when Jesus points it out to us, it is very possible for us to end up right there. So how do we avoid this? Well, Jesus kind of comes full circle at the end of the passage that we're going to read this morning to tell us exactly what we need to do. Just two things to try to start us off, to make sure that we don't end up in destruction, that we are listening to the voice of Jesus, even if the path he sets in front of us is pretty radical. And so I'll invite the band back up, and I just want to read these last few verses to you as two things that we can commit to right here, right now, this morning. Verse 20, it says this, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, like so many of us would be if we continue down this road of just making ourselves look good on the outside, but not having what we need on the inside. And Peter, Captain Obvious, remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, okay, you want to avoid that? Have faith in God. Trust in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. This isn't some magic code to just get whatever you want out of God. In fact, mountains in Scripture are always associated with trials or obstacles or hurdles, things that block our path forward. What Jesus is saying here is, trust me, and whatever obstacle may come your way, it will not stop you if you keep trusting me. And then he says in verse 25, he adds to it, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What Jesus is advocating for us to do is to reject pride. Because pride is never asks for forgiveness. Because pride is never wrong. And so right here, right now, today, we have the opportunity to just verbalize those two hopes, those two goals, those two passions of our life. God, I want to trust you. And God, I want to reject pride so that when you come and when you look at me, you're not going to see business as usual and you're not going to see a tree that isn't producing anything, but you're going to see who you created us to be. This morning, we can stand here saying, this mountain is huge, whatever it is in your life. But Jesus, I trust you. We can stand here this morning and say, the world and the people in it have hurt me, but I will forgive them. 
I will resist the temptation to lean into pride and let it run my life. We can stand here this morning and say, my plan seems so good and so right to me. But Jesus, I will trade it for yours because I believe that it is better. Because honestly, when everything is said and done, when the world looks at us, when Jesus looks at us, isn't what we want for things to be exactly what they seem. Would you pray with me? And then let's, let's spend some time singing and just make those, those commitments just your prayer. Lord, I want things to be exactly what they seem. How can I accomplish that? Lord, by trusting you and by rejecting the pride that so easily tries to creep in. Jesus, thanks for being the perfect example. Jesus, thanks for always having more than what we realize on the surface. God, thanks for calling us into really hard things. Lord, I I just cannot shake this feeling that you're up to some really cool stuff. And Lord, I know that, that this church wants to be a part of that. But Lord, it requires us to have open eyes, to recognize where real peace comes from, to recognize where real deliverance comes from, to not get caught up in what seems wise by our own standards and easy and consistent, but instead, Lord, trust you at what you say. Lord, I'm grateful that you did all the hard work in this. And so, God, right now, I just ask that we would align ourselves with you. We love you so much. We thank you for this time where we've heard from you. In your awesome name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Thank you.